my name is Mickey Willardin and I am a PhD qualified nutritionist uh, based in Auckland, New Zealand, and I have my own clinical practice. Um, in addition, I am um, the director of nutrition for S-Fuels. So, um, and I'm an endurance runner, which I believe you are as well, Derek. So um, probably a lot of commonalities. Yeah, definitely. We could probably chat forever about running. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> That is a, a pretty fun thing. I actually just did a showing last night of a film with Jeff Browning, who is a, an endurance oh. athlete as well. So that was pretty fun to do. Oh, that is great. Now, I actually, I've seen a couple of Jeff um, Brownings. I, I follow him a little bit on YouTube and saw that he had something coming out. Yeah, yeah. He ran the Rocky Mountain Slam last year, which was 400s <sighs> in one summer. And it was, it was pretty incredible. And it was fun to see. And he's just a good guy overall. So it, it was fun. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, and I guess kind of like related to Jeff, Jeff definitely follows like a higher fat, higher protein diet. And that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today. And you yeah. mentioned that you um, though you mentioned S-Fuels and how you're the what, head of nutrition there. Did I get that right? Yeah, the director wrong? of nutrition. Director yeah. of nutrition. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Yeah. That's how we connected was via Leighton at S-Fuels. And yeah. um, so we were going to talk today all about fat oxidation and the potential implications of a high carb diet as well amongst athletes. And I think this is going to be really fascinating because obviously, you know, that like in this world, everyone's always just like cram more carbs, more carbs, more carbs, eat all the crap you want. But we know that's not necessarily healthy, right? A hundred percent. And I think part of it, Derek, is that people often equate health to body size. And of course, as athletes, I mean, you've got obviously different athletes, but like if you think about um, your, I'm thinking about endurance runners here, you know, they're often able to maintain quite a lean physique and people then sort of just assume that this also means that they are healthy on the inside and you know that's not always the case and then of course the flip side of that is not flip side but the other um sort of group that you often get in endurance sport are those people who come into it expecting they're able to maintain the lean physique because of their training but they're unable to you know and so and I feel like there are you know different things occur um, for these different populations, but particularly as a an endurance athlete myself, um, I see a lot of endurance athletes come through my clinic, and we've got these this sort of um, occurring with them. Yeah, interesting. So let's um, before we jump too far ahead into like the health implications and different types of diets, let's just let's kind of jump into like what we're both really into, which is like I guess fuel usage during any sort of endurance sport or whatever. So like, and mainly, I guess those like substrates would be fat and carbohydrates, correct? Yeah, they're, they're predominantly um, the fuel substrates. And, you know, we often think like there is this concept of um, the, that at low intensities, we're going to be predominantly burning carbohydrate as a fuel source. Oh, sorry start that again um, at low intensities we're predominantly going to be burning um, fat as a fuel source but as that intensity increases uh, we're unable to rely as much on fat and our body now uh, relies more on carbohydrate as a fuel source and this is and I have to say Derek like when I was learning sports nutrition you know, 25 years ago, this was the prevailing sort of concept. And it hasn't really changed um, a lot over the years until probably the last 10 years with the likes of um, Philip Prinz's um, research group um, and, of course, others investigating it um, more fully. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk more about, like, 
I don't want to get too stuck in the dogma of um, yeah. carbs versus fat because I feel like that's all anyone ever talks about and they never really get yeah. into any sort of details or anything. Um, but let's just talk about why is like fat oxidation important? Because you mentioned that at a certain threshold, you start burning carbohydrates more than fat. But if for the most part, like endurance sports are a lot of zone two aerobic. I mean, we do go anaerobic at certain points, but for the most mm. part, it's a lot of zone two training, right? Yeah. Yeah. So why is fat oxidation important? Yeah. So one, if we think about our potential for uh, substrate use, fat is almost a limitless fuel supply. Like even the leanest of individuals is going to have hundreds and thousands of calories that they can utilize or tap into as a fuel source. Whereas carbohydrate is um, much more limited because we only store, you know, an average of maybe 500 grams of carbohydrate um, in our muscles, our liver, and um, obviously the glucose, or glucose not stored glycogen, but in our bloodstream. But I think the other thing is, is that we assume that as endurance athletes, and because we're in zone two, that we're going to be just burning fat as a fuel source. And that's just not the case. And um, it's been found in both research, but also um, clinically speaking, I've worked with a number of endurance athletes where we go and get their fuel substrate use tested in a laboratory. And even at the lower intensities, they're still burning significant amounts of carbohydrate and unable to, to utilize fat as a fuel source as you would expect because this is in large part determined by factors outside of training so of course um, fitness and uh, plays a large role in our ability to utilize fat as a fuel substrate but um, habitual diet also plays a large role in this yeah, that's really interesting because I've been talking to some people recently that have started going lower carb or keto and they just basically haven't been fueling their runs or their rides at all because their whole thought is like, mm. well, I have enough onboard fat. So then why is it important then to add in carbohydrates to a certain extent, even if you are a fat adapted athlete or say you're keto or carnivore or something? Yeah, I think the, like there are a couple of, re I mean, there are a number of, um, it's about right fuel, right time, right? And essentially, like it's it's a great test of your fat oxidation to, you know, or how fat adapted you are. The, the greatest field test you can do is to see how long you can go. Um, or, you know, can you do a four-hour four hour run without having to take on board any fuel and just having sort of electrolytes and, and that kind of thing. But ultimately, the we want to maintain high glycemic, uh, uh, want to maintain blood glucose levels throughout that endurance exercise because people often think that that when you that the difference comes down to sort of stored glycogen and you know the whole bonking theory is that oh, I've run out of glycogen but actually it's probably more that they've reached this point of like hypoglycemia so we have to maintain those blood sugar levels through across that session but it doesn't take um, a ton of carbohydrate to do that. So I still think that in part, um, you know, it is still important for athletes to maintain some sort of calorie um, intake throughout their sessions. Um, and I mean, other nutritionists might agree or disagree, but um, it also then alleviates some of the stress of the session and they're not going to 
what I determine sort of fall into a metabolic hole, if you like, because if you're constantly going out and training for these extended sessions, not taking on board fuel, then you're going to run potentially into problems with um, low energy availability and uh, subsequent sort of health issues associated with that. So that's one thing that I talk a lot to athletes about. Yeah, definitely. And so just thinking about that, like, there's a variety of nutrition products out there, like as far as like carb drinks and stuff. And I feel like most are just simple sugar. Yeah. Like any sort of gel or whatever is just usually a simple sugar, but there's also ones that are more like more complex carbohydrate. Yeah. So would, how do those affect you differently if you're say on a lower carb diet? Like say you just took straight up cane sugar versus like, like a cluster dextrin or something. Yeah. Um, I haven't, uh, well, some of them are like slower. Some of them hit, or are quick to digest but are slow to release in the bloodstream if I'm thinking about your sort of super starch type products, which at a lower intensity that um, might be perfectly adequate because, you know, you don't necessarily need a quick hit of carbohydrate to the bloodstream at that any one time that cane sugar would, would potentially give you. Um, but I think as well, like, it's interesting to look at studies related to carb rinsing you familiar with them Derek no I'm not at all so yeah and so these are studies that have been um, conducted in cyclists um, and what they show is that you don't necessarily need a ton of carbohydrate or glucose in any one hit to then get a um, performance uh, benefit from that and so it's we've got these sensors in our mouth, uh, like in our taste buds, that sense that carbohydrate is taken on board, even at small amounts. So, um, and that sort of sends signals to the brain that it can increase that motor output. So these are tactics which um, cyclists have, um, and not just cyclists, but other um, athletes that are trying to sort of minimize, I suppose, fuel usage. This is what they might use to help sort of trick their body into thinking they've got fuel on board so they can ramp up that exercise intensity. And literally, it's that you might take a full strength sports drink and um, take a big swig and sort of swish it around your mouth and then spit it out. And potentially over the course of say an hour you might get through an entire bottle of that sports drink but only would have consumed maybe 15 grams of carbohydrate because a lot of it ended up um, in a bucket beside you if you're on a trainer or on the road um, if you're out on the road um, rather than ingesting it so um, yeah so carbohydrate amount is one thing but but it's not just about the amount of carbohydrate it's you know how the brain is sensing that fuel input yeah, that's really interesting. I think it, it kind of shows like how complicated the body is where it's not just fuel in, like fuel out or whatever you want to say, like fuel in energy out. Like it's, it's extremely complicated. Yeah, completely. And, and then of course, you know, there are these other nutrition products um, such as um, what S-Fuels has, which is, you know, it contains a small amount of amino acids, uh, medium chain triglycerides. Um, and both of these can be used as fuel substrates particularly for a lower carb athlete where their protein usage or amino acid usage is a little bit higher than your high carb athlete. Um, and with the MCT or medium chain triglyceride, uh, that's a fuel source that the body doesn't store. So it's this readily available um, fuel source also. Interesting. 
So let's talk a little bit more about like using fat and using carbs and the efficiency of both. Because the other day I was listening to a podcast and they're very like anti-carb or anti-fat, um, I should say, or anti-ketone and stuff. Yeah. And it's, which is pretty typical, honestly, in, in the endurance sports world, which is for whatever reason, people are very against it. But I was interesting because they were saying, and I didn't really look into this too much, but that they were saying that burning fat is less efficient than burning glucose as it requires more oxygen. Like, so they're, they basically were comparing, like, say you're at like 70% of your VO2 max, if you're ingesting carbs or ingesting fat, that you're going to burn the carbohydrates in a more efficient way. Like, do you know anything about that? Yeah. So definitely, if we're talking about the ingestion of fat over or, or carbohydrate, fat is slow to digest as a fuel source during exercise. Um, and particularly the higher intensity that we go, you know, your GI tract is less interested in um, digesting food and more interested in and because your because the blood isn't flowing to the gut, it's flowing to your working muscles. So if you ingest anything which requires um, more work, then it's going to be harder to digest. So I think it's um, outside of the MCT, the medium chain triglyceride. So that is actually quite a special case compared to other sources of fat that you might sort of take in so in that sense absolutely ingesting carbohydrate which is easier to absorb and digest um, is is going to be better now 70 percent isn't actually that high though in terms of um, exercise intensity um, compared to say you know 85 percent or or um, you know 90 percent of um, of exercise intensity but certainly when I chat to athletes about fuel sources during ultra endurance um, events which you can't just rely on sort of simple sugars throughout that because well in my experience you get very sick of them very quickly um, what I what we tend to do is you know uh, at the in the beginning stages of the event or whatever it is that they're doing you can rely more on those whole foods um, that you um, might want to be taking that they might prefer to be taking in but as the event goes on and fatigue sets in and then by virtue of that the intensity increases then we that's when you move to sort of the more um, simple sugars where you trickle the carbs in as opposed to sort of dumping them into your system um, but I do think that if someone's going out there and they're wanting to push the pace and they are a, um, are an athlete who is able to do that from the get-go, even over these longer um, longer distances, then taking on board things like nuts and, and uh, other sources of fat probably isn't the best option in terms of a fuel source. Yeah, thinking about that, like around like, what is it like 85% of your VO2 max is when your fat burning drops significantly, right? Um, well, so this is what that crossover concept sort of um, would have suggested. So what we were talking about before about whether or not you burn um, carbohydrate or fat at a certain given intensity, it was thought that up to about 60% of VO2 max was sort of the peak of um, fat oxidation. And then it did precipitately, uh, sorry, it did absolutely drop off the higher that sort of intensity. But there have been like research studies now. Um, Prince, who we mentioned earlier, um, Dan Plews and um, his research group, they've found that they can, um, uh, that athletes 
can work up to 85% VO2 max and still burn a significant amount of energy from fat. And I do think, as we sort of mentioned, that that largely comes down to, um, to not just their training, but also their habitual diet. Um, and that is, yeah, I think that concept that you can't burn fat at higher intensities is now being challenged in the literature. Interesting. So just thinking about that, like let's talk about performance me- performance metrics, I should say. Mm. Like like how how does eating a higher fat diet and then also burning more fat versus glucose while in an endurance event, how does that affect like say your mitochondria or like does it affect like your glycogen levels? Yeah. So with regards when you're able to burn more fat, you by virtue, um, you wouldn't use utilize glycogen to the same extent and if we think about like a um, an Ironman athlete for example when they're when they're uh, competing it's not necessarily that that the person that um, wins is the one that is able to sort of speed up at the end of the race it's like it's more that they don't slow down you know and one of the limiting factors in endurance events is are our glycogen stores so if you are headed into a race and you are much more reliant on carbohydrate and you haven't been um, sort of adapted to be able to burn more fat as a fuel source then your ability to um, maintain your pace will be will be limited by your ability to take on board carbohydrate so if someone um, and we know that as endurance athletes you know, up to, I think it's 87% of athletes experience gastrointestinal distress across their, um, in their events. And so it's, so in order to match your fuel requirements, you have to take on board a significant amount of carbohydrate. But if you have GI issues, then that, then is going to limit your ability to do that. So by becoming fat adapted, you're able to burn more fat as a fuel source, you don't utilize your glycogen to the same extent, and you're actually able to maintain your pace for a lot longer and you get to the finish line quicker. So that is where I see a real value in um, becoming fat adapted as an athlete. And again, this doesn't mean that you don't take on board carbohydrate, it just means that you're not solely reliant on that exogenous fuel source, which um, almost regardless of what it is, you're then, you know, you can experience um, and it's really common to experience those GI issues that prevents you from then taking on board fuel. I mean that is one of the biggest reasons for sort of um, for uh, not having the performance that you wished for was with having those GI issues at least in my experience and what we see in literature. Yeah and like it's so interesting to be at events and to see that happen so often where it's almost like people are almost like bragging about it like oh I had GI issues I I threw up I did this I had to go to the bushes multiple times during this race and it's like like you realize that could be avoided right but people just don't want to accept that almost they just want to keep stuffing carbs in their face but you you can avoid that and have a better race. (laughs) And I really feel for them too because you know like you like you're you know, the, the race is like the, the peak. I mean, obviously, we as athletes, we love the training and, and things like that as well. But, 
you know, you only have the opportunity to race ultras like maybe two to three times a year, maybe twice a year even. Like I suppose it depends on the type of athlete you are um, or even once a year. And if your day is sort of ruined because you don't get your nutrition right, then it's really devastating. You're unable to sort of show your your um, true potential in that race. So I think that, um, and that's, yeah, it can be a really devastating thing for an athlete too. But if they're not showing, I think this is the other thing, Derek, which I find really exciting about the research that's been emerging over the last, um, you know, seven to 10 years that challenges this high carbohydrate concept is it just shows athletes that there are alternatives you know that they're not um uh that they're not going to have to um that their race isn't going to necessarily be compromised by gi issues gi issues because they can't tolerate a high amount of fuel um that there's another way of sort of doing it and i think that's really exciting too but you're right like particularly now i don't know if you've noticed this but there's a real pushback on having low carbohydrate um uh in uh, or for athletes and it's almost like it's something else has flipped and now there's recommendations of having 120 grams of carbs an hour and i just think that's a crazy amount of carbohydrate that someone needs to um be able to adapt and take on for in order to perform at their best like it does that seems crazy to me actually yeah, same. Like, I don't honestly know how people can take in that many carbs an hour. It's like four gels or five gels an hour, depending on how many carbs are in them. And like, that's a massive amount of carbohydrates. That really is. And, you know, I I believe, like, I haven't looked closely at this research, but um, I was chatting to some exercise physiology friends of mine, and they were talking about the fact that that type of carbohydrate intake downregulates your ability to burn fat, you know, and, and this... You know, if you're thinking, well, if it's just one race, does it really matter that you're unable to burn fat during that race? Um, but you have to adapt to that level of carbohydrate intake too. So it isn't just in the race that you'd be aiming to sort of um, take on board that 120 grams of carbohydrate. It's all the training leading up to it to adapt to be able to do that is constantly um, is going to be suppressing your your fat oxidation, which in itself, as we were um, sort of talking about earlier, is you know one of the um, like a, a key influencing factor in your ability to maintain your pace. Like it just it just seems at odds with what we know, or you know, with what might be best practice. I don't know, and I would also say that a lot of the research in that space has been done on elite athletes whereas you know what is that one percent of the field whereas most of us are sort of a bit like us i'm not sure how old you are derek i'm middle-aged um you know and and that's where the majority of participants in these ultra endurance um sports sort of lie and uh i think that you know what it takes to be elite might also mean that those elite people are able to take on board these massive amounts of carbohydrate and perform really well the, the same way that they could perform well at sort of any given sort of carbohydrate amount or under a lot of different conditions because they're just genetically wired to do really well i don't know what are your thoughts on that yeah i've thought about that a lot like over the years because it's like you can look at almost any elite athlete and like 
say they're switching between nutrition sponsors, it's like, oh, this is this product, like product A is the best, product B is the best, and the next year product C is the best. It's like, well, you're also just like an elite athlete. You've put in countless hours training and like like basically making your body perfect for whatever sport you're doing. So as long as you're putting in some sort of carbohydrates, you're probably gonna be just fine, like as far as performance yeah. levels go. Yeah. And then I just find it really interesting. And then I, I don't know, like it, it's interesting. I'm just basically just validating what you said because like they're elite athletes they're not just a normal like quote-unquote normal person out there like running a 50k or something a hundred a hundred percent and I mean, how expensive is that as well i mean sports nutrition products are not cheap so to then sort of um you know uh like uh have to multiply the amount that you would otherwise take on board by like four in order to you know race i mean that's that's a crazy amount of money that's where my brain also goes to be honest uh, i always think about that too like say like for a 100 mile or something if you're doing like say 120 grams of carbs an hour so that's like i don't know so you, just say for example you ran 15 hours like a fast 100 that's yeah. a lot of gels you have to buy and it's a lot of money and a lot of nutritional product yeah yeah totally and you know other and i know we haven't we really sort of touched on the health aspect of that but i do think a lot about that about the health aspect of this for my athletes you know because a lot of us we aren't elite we're out there because we really love it we enjoy it we enjoy being part of the community we um really love being part of an event and it really means a lot to us and we need to stay as healthy as we can to be able to do it for as long as we can and putting a ton of carbohydrate in during both training and racing just ramps up your the oxidative stress on the body it makes recovery so much um or the potential for recovery will be a lot longer because you've got a lot of these oxidative stress metabolites in your system increasing inflammation um yeah and it i don't know i just i mean that's sort of the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the health aspect but i just i just do not think it's the way forward for most of us athletes to be honest yeah, the, the health aspect is interesting, just overall general health, because I think a lot of time, like if just normal athletes, like not elites by any means, like we just think like, oh, well, so-and-so is doing 120 grams an hour, 100 grams an hour of gels, so I need to do that too. It's like, okay, when your volume is only 40 miles a week and this person's doing 150 miles a week, it's it's different how your body's utilizing those carbohydrates. And then on top of that, it's like, what are your main goals? Like for most of us, most of us, it's just to go out and run or ride and have a good time. It's not about winning Western states or winning the Tour de France. And like those goals are very different. And then like there are probably like detrimental effects to consuming that many carbohydrates and having elevated blood sugar for so long for so many years. A hundred percent it is. And if I think like one of the um, studies that I was looking at by Prinz's group again was looking at middle-aged triathletes. And middle-aged in his study was about, I think the the age was sort of like 39 years. And I'm like, gosh, is that middle-aged? Like, I'm a, I'm a bit older than that, if I'm honest. Um, but anyway, and what they found was 30% of their subjects, when they, what they did is they put them on either a high-carbohydrate diet, so they were on a high-carbohydrate diet for four weeks, then there was a washout period of about two weeks, and then they, they, put the same um, individual then went on a low carbohydrate diet for four weeks but of course they randomized which came first the high or the low carb 
diet. But what they also did, which I found super interesting, was that they um, used continuous glucose monitoring to assess that glycemic control and you know what was happening with their blood sugar. And 30% of the participants who were middle-aged triathlete, endurance athletes, so they did significant hours of training each week, they were pre-diabetic. And this is, and, and again, it's like we were saying at the start of the, the pod, podcast, you know, like we assume that someone who is lean is also going to have really good metabolic health markers, but we just can't assume that. That's a, that is a, um, a significant portion of that population. And, you know, I have seen other research that, that might indicate, you know, the, the leaner individual. Like, so, so we, if I'm thinking about, I'm sort of going off on a tangent, so stop me if, if you want. But if I'm thinking about uh, uh, fat storage, you know, like insulin is a nutrient storage hormone. So it will take fatty um, glucose, but it also takes fatty acid and it del fatty acids from the bloodstream and delivers it to where it's required. So it stores the fat away. Um, the glucose gets shoved into, into our muscle with glycogen um, because our body likes homeostasis. It likes to keep blood glucose within a very narrow range because if it's too high it's dangerous because it increases inflammation that um, increases um, uh, endothelial damage in the cells so um, and vascular damage over time but too low of course um, is not ideal either we get hypoglycemic and and um, the associated symptoms so it, it really likes this narrow range so it's almost um, when we do gain weight and gain body fat, it is like a buffer almost because it's taking the nutrients out of our bloodstream and it's storing it away. So, and that's sort of beneficial. But, you know, lean people can still have issues with blood sugar. Uh, or in, in particular, we see this in, in some populations in that there are some people who just cannot really gain a lot of body fat. And I don't know if you know some sort of people like that, Derek, but they're almost more at risk because their body is unable to store the glucose or store or um, store away the fatty acids for later use. And so those people also can sort of present with pre-diabetes and you wouldn't expect it looking at them. Um, so that was quite a bit of a tangent more on that health thing. But it's, I think what I'm trying to get at is that um, we're not protected by our sport necessarily, and you're not protected by just the fact that you are lean. Yeah, exactly. And thinking about that, like a couple of years ago, I wore a level CGM for, for months and months and months. And at the time I was still running like, like 80 miles a week or so, but I was lifting pretty consistently at the gym and not to get big, like I'm by no means like a big person. Like I'm not ripped and neither, <laughs> even when I was like lifting consistently, like I wasn't big by any means, but while wearing the CGM though, I noticed that my blood sugar levels were a lot lower. And is that because like muscle can be a glycogen sink or is there something else going on there? Um, oh, muscle absolutely is a glucose sink. And that's, you know, when you've got more muscle, you've got um, a, a place for the um, sort of glucose to go. But also, you know, when you do, when you are active, let's say um, you go out for a run and you come, you know, back home and you're having breakfast or whatever, 
Um, your muscles are primed. We've got transporters on our muscles that don't require insulin to deliver the glucose into the into the muscle cells. So, in fact, one of the best times to have carbohydrate is post-exercise because that carbohydrate has little impact on your um, blood glucose level because it, it or your blood insulin level, and it literally it is just sort of delivered back into that muscle cell. So. Um, yeah, and the more muscle you have, um, the more, the the bigger of a reservoir that is. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like when I was wearing the CGM and then going out on runs and stuff, I would check it. I got really obsessive about it, which is probably not the best thing. But I was just always really curious. So like one time I took a gel and I was like, I wonder how this is going to affect my blood sugar levels. But then like I was doing a workout though too, so then I did a whole bunch of uphill intervals. And when I got back to my truck, I checked it and I was like, oh, like it, it went up a little bit, which is fine. But then it was pretty level, though. It never really like spiked yeah. too much. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting because, of course, you're utilizing that glucose as it's going in. So you would expect that it wouldn't necessarily um, go up just because you had it, because you were going to be utilizing it at the time. What I find um, people often get surprised about if, they're, if they've got a CGM and they're looking at it in and around their workouts is that, you know, your glucose will go up post a hard workout. And people are often a little bit surprised by that because, you know, as I said, the body likes homeostasis and it likes to keep um, your blood glucose within this narrow range. Um, anything too high isn't necessarily a good thing, but I should qualify that in that that it's not it's not that every single glucose spike is, you know, terrible for you. And in fact, the glucose spike post a hard workout is to be expected because your body's been um, uh, tapping into its glycogen stores um, from the liver and converting it into glucose to sort of fuel that session. So um, I'm not sure if you ever noticed that after a, a session that your glucose would rise, but if any athlete out there is listening to this and that's what they see, then I wouldn't necessarily worry too much about that. Yeah, definitely. I noticed the rise is a little bit like post-exercise, like when I woke up in the morning. Yeah. And basically any meal with any sort of carbohydrate, if I just ate protein and fat, it was like maybe like one milligram a deciliter higher, but yeah. nothing much. Then like yeah. instantly when you had carbohydrates, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, that does affect it. <laughs> yeah. And I've, it's really interesting, isn't it? What foods affect different individuals? Like there was a study in um, um, out of Israel in 2015, and they looked at blood glyce or blood sugar response to different foods um, in, a, in a whole range of different people. And we are all, there's so much individual variation in this that it's very difficult to sort of determine um, at, a, at a more group level, oh, these foods are uh, not great for blood sugar, but these foods are going to be fine for blood sugar within that carbohydrate group. So, um, for example, they had some people would eat a banana and their blood sugar would stay completely even, you know, like it didn't really change much. Others, it would absolutely spike. Uh, and same level of ripeness as well. It wasn't to do with how ripe the banana was. Um, but then in other individuals, they would eat like a cho chocolate chip cookie. And in some people, their blood sugar remained absolutely stable, whereas other people just spiked up as well. So like in this, and again, this is probably a bit of a tangent, but I think if your listeners are interested in this subject, they'll be interested in this in general. Um, this really does... Um, question that glycemic index of different carbohydrate foods because this is often 
what is um, people refer to it as you know you want foods that are low GI low glycemic index because they're going to have less of an effect on your blood sugar compared to these high GI foods but this study really blew that out of the water because it showed that it wasn't the food itself it was how we respond to the food which makes sense right because we're all individuals um, our physiology though obviously very similar there are differences that change how food affects us yeah are those all like genetic differences for the most part like say someone scandinavian versus somebody from like the equator region i don't think it is genetic in in the sense that you've just asked the question like i think like it's it's definitely individual but it's not like everyone from a particular sort of part of the world is going to have a similar response versus a, another part but certainly genetics plays a role yeah no that makes sense Mm. Um, let's talk a little bit more about like recovery then, because you mentioned a few times now that like high carbohydrate diets can affect your recovery uh, pretty dramatically. So like how, I guess the question is like, if you're burning predominantly fat and say like a, a three hour ride or a two hour run or something, how, like, how does that affect your recovery versus like just slamming a hundred grams of carbs an hour while you're out there on that run or that ride? Yeah. So because it's, so to, to oxidize carbohydrate is metabolically costly. So it does create more oxidative stress in the body and that will ramp up the inflammatory processes. And, you know, inflammation is obviously an important part of the training of um, uh, training and we adapt to that inflammation and we become resilient and, and we get stronger. But it just increases the inflammation much more than you would otherwise um, like and so because the inflammation is around for a lot longer it just takes the muscle more time to um, uh, to repair if you like and to um, then be ready again for a next harder training session and I there hasn't been um, a lot of published literature looking at exercise induced muscle damage and sort of carbohydrate versus fat and that is an area which is um, relatively um, you know needs to be a lot more work probably in that space like a lot of sports nutrition um, stuff in this area but definitely anecdotally um, in um, clients that I've worked with and people that I know who adopt a low carbohydrate approach um, this recovery is significantly better when they're following a lower carb approach versus a high carb approach. And the other uh, part of this is that if you are following a lower carbohydrate approach, you're much more likely to be uh, producing ketones, which is that byproduct of fat metabolism. And ketones have been explored for their role in recovery. And they work as signaling molecules to help dampen down that inflammatory um, response. So not only does a lower carb approach have less of those uh, oxidative stress metabolites that would promote inflammation, it's also enabling more ketone production, which helps signal the um, sort of anti-inflammatory processes in the body. All, all that said, I'm certainly not suggesting that if you go for a four-hour ride, you should avoid carbohydrate when you come in. Like that is absolutely not what I'm saying. But it's just, you know, I guess, highlighting um, the differences between having super high carbs throughout 
um, the training versus um, having, you know, a much more moderate sort of approach. Yeah, and hopefully we get to see more data coming out because it is like there are so many like poor studies out there and there's just a lack of data as well. And so it'd be cool to see just more properly done studies whether that confirms what we're doing is right or wrong, because like, we just want to know the truth, right? Completely. And what I would say as well is that, you know, there are different lines of evidence that we draw on in order to um, inform our practice, right? So you've got, you do have those scientific trials and they are, you know, the randomized controlled trials are, you know, um, uh, brilliant because they do, they test a mechanism and they sort of give us an answer for that particular group. But then you've also got, you know, evolutionarily speaking, you know, like what's um, prime, you know, how have we evolved to become fitter, faster, stronger? So that sort of evolutionary based um, evidence is, is another sort of prong to that evidence um, base. But then you've also got clinical practice. And what do you see in the people that you work with? What do you notice in yourself? And I think we can't dismiss what we experience ourselves as athletes and that's probably some of the best data that you can get because when we're thinking about scientific trials, like they report on averages. And so we have mean blood glucose responses and we have, you know, uh, uh, mean performance outcomes. And, and, you know, this is what the studies report on, but, but we're not averages and we're not means. We, you know, we are our own um, sort of experiment, if you like. So I always encourage people to, to remember that whenever they're um, trying to adopt a different approach to something or they wanting to try something new, that just because their experience doesn't marry up with what the literature says doesn't mean that it's not a valid experience. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's, it's interesting how people discount anecdotal experiences. Then like at a certain point, like all these anecdotal experiences become a data set. And it's like, Don't how can they. you ignore that giant data set? <laughs> I, I 100% agree. And, you know, if I step back and think about nutrition as a science um, as well, is that a lot of uh, the information that is out there in the public arena comes from population-based research, which is observational research. And it's uh, not a good, um, it, it's the best that we have, but they're not, it's not good data to then make individual recommendations from as well. So I think that's a, a really important point too. Definitely. So you mentioned a few times also um, in this episode about using diet um, to increase your fat burn. So like, let's talk about diet in general and like what type of diet is the best to, I guess, become a better athlete and to burn more fat? Because I think people tend to go to the extremes with this of either like zero carb, like hundred percent carnivore, to the other extreme of just like super high carb with never eating fat or protein. So like, yeah. what is like the, as far as like fat burn goes, like what is the best type yeah. of diet to kind of start doing this? Yeah. Well, um, Jeff Rothschild, he um, did a really good analysis of this, for his PhD research. And I think it was published a few years, uh, maybe three years ago now, um, looking at the factors that influenced fat oxidation and um, habitual fat intake was one of the, um, biggest contributors to someone's ability to utilize fat as a fuel source. Um, so, so that's one of the first things I would say is that if someone is wanting to enhance their fat oxidation, then you actually do need a higher fat intake for that. And then by default, the carbohydrate intake is going to be lower. Now, um, and you can do it um, several ways. 
uh, Derek. And oh, because the other thing I would say is that your habitual training load also makes a difference as well as to your ability to burn fat. But, you know, uh, there are people who recommend that you might go um, what is called cold keto for three to four weeks and really um, uh, drill down on um, the carbohydrate, 50 grams or less per day, um, have 70% of calories coming from fat and then have the remainder coming from protein. And protein isn't, it, it's definitely emerging more as an important nutrient, which is fabulous. And I certainly, um, as a nutritionist, that's what I tend to focus on is, is the protein sort of aspect. Um, but you'd want like 20, you'd want to have at least sort of 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight coming from protein as well as part of that sort of habitual diet. So um, pushing the fat up, dropping the carbs significantly for a period of time, maybe three to four weeks, certainly during base training, um, rather than, you know, in the key sort of like work of a training campaign. You wouldn't want to be doing this if you had to go out and run intervals, for example. Um, but then moving to a more moderate, I say moderate carb approach, but it might even be, but it's, you know, up 100 to 150 grams of carbs, which people in the low carb space might go, that's fairly moderate. But if we compare it to the um, uh, habitual diet of most people, which is up around three to 400 grams, and that's not even active people, that's just your general sort of population, you can see it's still a low carb approach. I would also say that the timing of carbohydrate matters also. So particularly for people who are new to this approach, they want to be having, they want to be delaying or um, not utilizing carbohydrate pre-training unless it's a longer training session. And then it tends to mat not matter quite so much. But you can absolutely have calories before training, but make them protein and fat calories. Then you then you're still you're keeping your insulin low, which we know that's um, important from a fat oxidation perspective. Um, of course, that glycogen deple depletion is also important from a fat oxidation perspective. Um, and then you'd take on board carbohydrates post-training just to help with that recovery process. However, the longer that session is, let's say you're going for a five or six hour sort of um, mission in the mountains to train for an ultra, then avoiding carbohydrate um, pre-exercise might not be so important as what it is if you're just going out for, say, a two-hour run or something like that. Yeah, so thinking about going on these longer uh, runs or rides to increase fat oxidation, like, is it beneficial to do those fasted or is it, in your eyes, more beneficial to have some sort of fat protein beforehand? Yeah, like, personally, I think having some fuel beforehand um, is a good idea just because... As athletes, we know that energy availability is um, or can be problematic or low energy availability. And often I wonder how much of the literature around um, low carbohydrate diets is conflated actually with that low energy availability in general. So people blame the fact that's, that you know an athlete has followed a low carb approach and that's why they're experiencing these um, metabolic or hormonal challenges, where in fact, it was more the fact that it was low energy across the board, so it wasn't necessarily just carbohydrate. Um, and if you are going out for an extended training session, then you 
you still need to take on board calories and there's limited time across the day to make that up. So I think that having protein and fat before going out on these, um, on like a, a longer training session makes sense because you've got calories on board, you've got nutrients on board, but you're keeping that insulin low. So you're still able to upregulate those enzymes that are important for fat oxidation. And then of course, you're, so you're sort of um, greasing the grooves with a groove, if you like, with, when it comes to fat oxidation in that, in that sense. Definitely. And I think that's a common misconception. And I've had this conversation a few times with people recently that and maybe it's because it's this kind of the start of the new year, but people are more interested right now in like going lower carb and whatever. Yeah. But um, a lot of people are just not fueling enough. They're like, oh, well, I'm, yeah. I'm low carb or I'm keto, so I just don't eat as much. It's like, well, you're yeah. still an athlete and you're still training, even like a low volume training, you still need to eat yes. more than an average sedentary person or you're just not going to have anything available at a certain point. Yeah, that that is absolutely true. And we know that the you know metabolic adaptation occurs whenever anyone is following a lower when they're in a calorie deficit basically and so the you know the body will sort of turn the dimmer switch down if you like on a lot of these um, physiological processes which over time can put a, an athlete into a state of relative energy deficiency so uh, but that isn't a a um, inevitable part of being a low carb athlete because you can still have significant calories and be low carb. You just have to make sure that you're getting your calories in from fat and protein. And what I would say is that particularly female athletes, you know, very good at restricting, I would say. And if a female athlete is going low carb, um, she's, and this is a this is a generalization. As a female, I feel like I'm sort of qualified to to say this. And a female nutritionist who's seen several female athlete clients, um, you know, very easy, very good at restricting, but aren't as good at adding back those calories from fat and protein. So I think yeah, there's that definitely needs a bit of a mention. Yeah, for sure. And like just another anecdotal experience. But I was talking to a friend the other day who's done like low carb for years now and he was he's been lifting a lot more and he still runs quite a bit but he's been in the gym like a lot of hours and he'll text me and be like oh dude you guess what i had for dinner i'm like what he's like i had a pound of bison i had six eggs i had a protein shake i had two glasses of raw milk just like tons and tons and tons of calories and his energy levels are fine because he's recuperating the lost energy like lost calories yeah. he's not restricting anything he's eating a lot but he's yeah. just eating like the proper food and not just junk or restricting stuff yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, people. I mean, there are there are people out there who have next to no carbohydrate, and they're they're absolutely able to push high intensity exercise to recover well from exercise. You know, like I think it's it's. And again, this is anecdotal reports that you see. Like I'm thinking about the likes of Dr. Sean Baker, for example, like crazy carnival guy who has the world record sort of times in what 500 meters and a thousand meters in the rowing in his um, age group. You know, like it's um, yet he he has adequate calories and, and adequate fuel coming from other sources. So um, low carb isn't doesn't mean low calorie, and in fact. 
low carb can mean a much more nutrient-dense diet because you've now got room for extra protein and extra fat, which brings with it those other micronutrients that as athletes we often don't think about because we're often thinking only about macronutrients, carbohydrate, protein, and fat. And we forget what's sort of underneath that, all these other nutrients that those macronutrients can deliver. Yeah, exactly. I mean, specifically with Sean Baker, if I remember right, he eats like, I think like three pounds, if not more, of meat a day. Yes. He's, he's a big guy, so he also needs to fuel that. But when he's that active, it's like he's not eating a pound of ground beef in the morning and calling it for the day. Like he's eating no. a lot of food. He really is. And I saw him in person last year and I just was blown away by just what a big guy he was. It was yeah. crazy. <laughs> uh, I believe I've never met him in person, but I just from seeing his videos, I'm just like, wow, he looked like a big guy. <laughs> he really is. <laughs> well, as we start kind of wrapping up here, um, let's talk a little bit about supplementation. Yeah. Um, and like my general thoughts about supplements are like for the general person, you just focus more on like a real food diet. But if you need a supplement, go for it. Um, but then athletes probably need a supplement if you want to get to that next level. But as far as like fat oxidation and, and recovery and everything, like what are kind of like the go-to supplements that you would recommend or take yourself? Yeah. So I think like I a hundred percent endorse getting what you can from food, but also recognize that it's difficult to get everything we need from food, just given the, um, modern environment with which food is produced, the, additional sort of environmental stressors that are out there plus of course the stress of training as an athlete so um, one of my um, go-to's is um, salt sodium uh, because as low carb as a lower carb athlete and when I work with lower carb athletes you know we don't uh, because we don't store as much carbohydrate because we're not eating as much carbohydrate we can um, we don't store as much water because for every gram of carbohydrate, sorry, for every yeah, gram of carbohydrate we store, we store an additional three to four grams of water. And with that is electrolytes. So when we don't store as much carbohydrate, we don't store as much water. So we do, and with it, we lose our electrolytes to, to the same extent. Now, this is individual. Like, that can be a transient thing for some people, but for others, they just need to really stay on top of their hydration and stay on top of their sodium. So that would definitely be one. And the lower insulin level um, also makes the, um, the kidneys dump sodium too. So salt is one for sure. Um, the, another electrolyte is um, magnesium because of the, again, it's an electrolyte which we might not um, be able to hold as much. But also magnesium is involved in over 250 processes in the body, um, particularly with um, stress, obviously muscles, brain, everything. So magnesium is another supplement I recommend almost everyone take and it's not as readily available in the food supply anymore. So, you know, 300 milligrams of magnesium, a glycinate um, type form. So when you buy magnesium, it's bound, we need to, um, needs to be bound to something else for us to absorb it. And the, the magnesium biglycinate is a good option. Magnesium threonate is another good option uh, because we're able to absorb it more. Uh, depending on where you live, um, vitamin D might also be really important. For us here in New Zealand, the sun doesn't hit um, the earth at the right uh, 
or uh, latitude, I think it is, that means that the UVB rays aren't as strong during winter. So we, and that the UVB rays is, is what we need in order for vitamin D to be synthesized um, from sun exposure. So um, that, so for a large part of the year, we need to be supplementing with vitamin D and vitamin K2 because that helps deliver the, the, it helps the vitamin D do its job. Magnesium does as well, actually. So that would be another one that, that I would recommend people take. And actually, Derek, I think even, um, I mean, iron is certainly important, particularly for female athletes. But I think what is important for athletes is to get blood biomarkers done because we are all different in our requirements for um, for some of these nutrients that I've talked about, which aren't easily measured in blood. But vitamin B12, uh, folate, uh, uh, ferritin as a as a um, as a marker of iron, and also you know the other iron markers like uh, zinc. These are the things which I think athletes should try to get annual sort of um, blood work done on just to ensure that their levels are where they need to be. Yeah, I know that makes a lot of sense. And let's um, like, what are your thoughts about caffeine? Because at a certain point, like caffeine can help increase your fat oxidation, right? Well, yeah, it's a great question. So caffeine, I, I mean, I love caffeine and uh, personally love caffeine, but also love it as an ergogenic aid because of its um, effect on the central nervous system, sort of ramps up, does ramp up um, fatty acid oxidation uh, and can help in that um, fat oxidation space. But I think caffeine has more of a beneficial effect with regards to performance in you know, we don't perceive the work to be as hard as what it truly is. And I think that's where the real magic lies with caffeine, if I'm honest. Uh, and as long as you're not someone who is overly sensitive to caffeine, that doesn't ramp up anxiety, impact negatively on sleep, then we know that having um, habitually having even four to five cups of um, coffee a day can um, is, is absolutely fine from a health perspective and it can help with overall insulin sensitivity as well at least population-based research has shown us that so i'm a fan of caffeine yeah that's super interesting it seems like like it's, it's another very polarizing thing where people are very like anti-caffeine or very pro-caffeine yes. but it's like it has its purpose and it could be deadly or dangerous in certain extents just like anything else it totally is and i think i i would say there is definitely more research to support um, the health benefits of caffeine than there is to support that it's not good for you. But again, we're all different. Now, I know people who whose anxiety really ramps up even if they have a cup of coffee. So you again, this is just knowing yourself and knowing how things impact you. Um, um, I think that's really important. Yeah, I think there should be a, a huge takeaway from this episode, whether like, obviously, like learning about fat oxidation is important everything. But in the end, it's like, we're all a little bit different and we all need to experiment, find out what works best for us. Just because yeah. someone's winning Western states doing this doesn't mean that you're going to win Western states doing that. And it may affect you very differently. A hundred percent agree. Yeah. So let's sort of, um, let's wrap it up here, um, Nikki, but where can people yeah. find you? And um, yeah. Yeah. So um, first, thank you so much for um, having me, Derek. I really um, appreciated the opportunity to chat to you about this because, you know, when you're talking to someone who's also interested in this space, it just makes for a really fun conversation and your questions were great. 
Uh, so you can find me over on Instagram, where I'm probably, that's where I'm most active, at Mickey Willardin, which is my name. Uh, you can also find me over on my website, mickeywillardin.com. Uh, and also I have a podcast myself called Wikipedia, where I talk a lot about the stuff which we sort of summarized today around health, nutrition, fitness, performance, um, because we're basically interested in the same things. I'm sure that listeners of your show would probably find something they'd be interested in over on my podcast also. Awesome. Is your podcast more female specific or is it for men and women? Men and women. Okay. Awesome. That's good to know. Amazing. Great. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. It was super interesting.